0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: And Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in uh, Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. If you download the app and uh, type in those coordinates and you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country seven days a week. I'd also like to let you know that if you miss one of our, uh, our, our interviews and uh, you want to check that out, you can go to our SoundCloud. We post them there. Uh, you can also check us out online at our Element FM, E-L-M-N-T-F-M website, and uh, find out more about the programming. So if someone is outside of our listening area, you think they might enjoy some of the programming, please let them know they can do that. And uh, right now, I'd like to welcome uh, someone to the show. Uh, he has been kind enough to join us on the line from Montreal, Fou Nimi, and uh, he is the Executive Director for the Centre of Research uh, Action on Race Relations. And he's kind enough to join us today to talk about something that has recently been in the news. You may have heard about this situation that happened uh, on the West Coast in British Columbia. It had to do with a, uh, a grandfather and Uh, a child that went in to open up a bank account uh, and found themselves uh, in a very unusual situation uh, being arrested and handcuffed by police uh, over uh, some, some misinterpreted information. And, uh, Faux, you're, you're, you're here to talk to us a little bit about this because of the kind of thing that we are seeing happening, I guess, more and more, and that is this racial profiling uh, in a commercial racial profiling uh, trend that's happening.
2: Exactly. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, This is an issue of what we know more and more in Canada as consumer racial profiling, uh, whereby basically people of color, indigenous people, because of the race and skin color, are, shall we say, unfairly and badly treated by um, commercial establishments and banks and uh, department stores, uh, supermarkets, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, we've heard a lot of this kind of case in the United States, for example, um, example banking while black, uh, black folks getting into a restaurant being denied service or giving poor services because of their race. Uh, and in the last couple of years in Ontario and in Nova Scotia, there have been... Uh, Decisions by the uh, human rights tribunals and other courts uh, against consumer racial profiling. So it's about time that this issue be addressed fully by those who are most affected by it. Uh, In this case, his grandfather, who is indigenous, and uh, his granddaughter, who both of them were obviously arrested and uh, handcuffed uh, because of uh, bank employees uh, reporting them. Uh, That has some action has to be taken.
1: Now, a little bit about that story, and let's, I'd like to explore the backstory to this to some degree in mm-hmm. terms of what you're talking about this commercial race, racial profiling. But mm-hmm. uh, for those people that aren't aware of the of the situation that happened, as you mentioned, a grandfather and his daughter, I believe he went into the bank with her to open up a bank account for her.
2: Exactly, actually, this is a 12 year old granddaughter who with, with report and bank account in downtown Vancouver, and basically showed ID. Uh, apparently based on the news report uh, one bank employee looked at it and suspected it was some sort of uh, fraudulent ID and then she called the police on them and the police arrived Uh, obviously we don't know exactly what was told to uh, to the police by the bank employee but the police arrived and uh, detained and then arrested this man and his granddaughter uh, for possible theft for fraud uh, which is, uh, you know, but unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that we have seen before in some of the cases we have in Montreal. And we feel that this is a typical uh, practice of consumer racial profiling. Simply, in other words, there is a certain presumption of guilt, a presumption of crime right the outset. By a store or a business employee vis-à-vis a, a customer or a client simply because um, that of the customer or client's race um, and skin color, and that's not acceptable. It's a, a violation of their civil rights. Uh, Fo,
1: a couple of things come to mind when when you know we we hear this story. For me, uh, and they both are in regard to to money. So you have a business that obviously wants to protect themselves against fraud, which is understandable. Um, and it seems to me that we're hearing a lot about, uh, look at all the stuff that we see happening online where people are, are you know, with the scams that are going on. So there's there's a lot of things that are happening. Uh, I'm sure that insurance companies are not happy about the kind of things that, that are happening, if, if uh, you know, that there's hacking going on on people's banks and all of these kind of things. But with this kind of thing, as you pointed out, it's 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 commercial racial profiling. Now... First of all, I'm sure that banks and other organizations uh, that are in business to to make money uh, don't necessarily want to turn people away or or uh, you know have these kind of things happen because it's better for them to to get more business uh, in in the, in the bottom line. But when It's you, a
2: question of business common sense. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, how to make more money and how to make profits. Yeah, but at
1: the same time, when you when you when you know when we hear about this kind of thing happening, a gentleman comes in, uh, flags start to go off because there is a little bit of of mismatched information, perhaps, and then uh, in the bottom line uh, or at the end of the story, we find out that there actually was no you know, nothing wrong with any of the information that was taken, uh, and so part of this was. In, in regard to the employee that was dealing with the situation, I guess maybe they were inexperienced. Uh, maybe there was some sort of, uh, uh, you know, racial, as you say, racial uh, profiling going on uh, that, the, that they saw something and, and automatically assumed the, the, the negative. Um, now, you say that, that, you know, this is something we're seeing more and more of. So how long have we been seeing this kind of commercial racial profiling going on? And, and you say it's we saw it starting in the States, maybe?
2: No, exactly. I think that in Canada, it's uh, in the United States, the practice has been around for a long time. You are not properly served. You are not fairly treated in the business establishment because of your skin color. Uh, ironically, um, last um um, month we celebrated the 80th anniversary of the case of uh, Christie versus York Corporation, a case of a black man in Montreal in 1939 who went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada against a uh, tavern at the Montreal Forum because he was denied service because they told him, Point Black, we don't want to serve blacks here. Mm-hmm. So he fought his way all the way to the Supreme Court in 1939 and the Supreme Court said uh, in its uh, infamous decision that it's the uh, freedom of commerce, it's up to each business decide who they want to serve. Wow. That was 80 years ago. So now we're facing a different form of racial discrimination in business establishments, whereby a person's race and skin color is usually a factor that arouses a heightened suspicion and requiring greater scrutiny, so, it's a, people always suspected at the outset they being committing fraud or some sort of crime simply because of their skin color and race. So, we are talking about here possibly unconscious bias. Talking about uh, stereotypes, um, but the end result is that people of color and indigenous people are being badly treated and, in some cases, being the target of a police intervention that's very upsetting. So, we're not here to talk about the intent or the intention of the um, business or business employee. We have to talk about the effect of this kind of treatment or practice on the very people uh, who, because they're being uh, racialized or become indigenous, being made to feel as if they're a criminal at the outset instead of being a potential client for, or an actual client for the business. So that's why I said it's a question of uh, good business, common sense, but also a question of respecting people's civil rights. So this is why, on the one hand, banks and other businesses should really examine consumer racial profiling as a practice that is now recognized uh, increasingly by Canadian courts. And And at the same time, people like us uh, have to really know better um, how to stand up and take Know for an answer and demand uh, not only justice, but also, we call it, you know, fair treatment when we access a business establishment, a bank, a restaurant, a department store, and so on and so forth, and not be treated at the outset as if we're either we're criminal or we're so poor we can't even afford a product or service, uh, you know, that kind of presumption based on racial bias, uh, it hurts, and it can lead to uh, very regrettable consequences. Imagine in this case if the father uh, stood up and argued with police, I shouldn't be arrested, I shouldn't be handcuffed. You know, it, the situation escalates, and the next thing we you know, there could be violence. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, there is always psychological violence when you're arrested, yeah. wrongly arrested, and presumed to be, of, you know, in front of your granddaughter. Um, you know, that's a form of psychological violence, and then there must be a price to pay for that.
1: And, and as you point out, uh, we've already heard about that, some of that, uh, that repercussiveness uh, and the result of that, which uh, you have this 12-year-old girl who uh, saw this happening and that will affect her, uh, her, her uh, ideas of, of where she feels welcome and, and wh- where she might want to, uh, uh, you, you know, can she go anywhere else to, to do business. So, so it's already affecting her at, at such a young age like that.
2: Well, yeah. There's also something else that we need to remind ourselves that uh, almost ten years ago, also in in Vancouver, there was a case of involving racial discrimination and racial profiling involving Indigenous women. Um, who uh, was it in two thousand and five? The, the decision came down. Basically, basic a shopping mall that discriminated against Indigenous people by uh, practically not allowing them to uh, to go into the, uh, the the mall. And the case is we call it the radick case, Gladys Radek was. Was a middle-aged uh, indigenous woman with a disability, and she was prohibited from uh, frequenting the shopping mall. And the case went all the way to the, the, the courts, and the, and, uh, the court upheld it. and, and um gruel that she was a victim of uh, racial profiling because of who she was and uh, of the, by just by banning her from the mall the the, the, the mall just, uh, discriminated against her so that 's also a form of consumer racial profiling because i mean she could have been a customer, she could have been you know a buyer or consumer of product and services in the mall, but because of who she is. how she looks like, Uh, she's treated at the outset as being quote-unquote undesirable. Uh, yeah. It is the same thing as you know, driving while black, you're stopping black mm. drivers, especially when they drive fancy cars, because they are assumed to not being able to afford a car that they are possibly driving a car that does not belong mm. to them. That's why our studies in different Canadian cities have shown that um, black drivers are disproportionately stopped by the police mm. and double-checked because of some sort of uh, heightened uh, suspicion that it's completely unjustified. And this is why, in this case, we strongly hope that this indigenous man and his uh, granddaughter will take legal action and go to the Canadian Human Rights Commission to file a complaint in order to not only to seek reparation, but also to force the, uh, the institution to adopt measures to prevent this from happening again to others.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now I know you're limited in time, so I, I know we have to wrap up quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. But we do appreciate you taking the time to come on and speak with us about this issue. Um, before we go, I just uh, I'm, I'm wondering, as we see this on the rise, I'm wondering from your perspective, uh, uh, is this something that you think businesses
2: are are writing into their their policies? Well, having a policy is something. I think it's a good step as first step, but to ensure that the policy is implemented and translated into training and into good business practices is something else. In some of the cases we have, we see great policies on paper, but that mm. the staff are not trained. Mm. Uh, people don't understand what the race discrimination is. They're always thinking about intent. Uh, when the courts have said for more than 30 years that racism or other forms of discrimination is not about intent, but the, is it the effect or the consequence of one's action and practice on the you know, very people who are affected by it because of race or gender or disability. And that's why we think that it's great to have policies on paper, but you've got to implement them and translate these uh, wishes and standards into uh, good practices. Fol,
1: mm. uh, just before we go, I, I yeah. know I have to go. If sure. you can quickly tell us uh, something about the Center for Research Action on Race Relations. What is it that you actually do there?
2: We're a non-profit uh, civil rights advocacy, and basically we represent and assist a lot of victims of discrimination based on race and related grounds to help them access the justice system from the Human Rights Commission to the courts, uh, basically where, where we defend people of uh, victim discrimination, and we, we challenge discriminatory policies and practices. Uh, race is our fo- main focus, but we also deal with a lot of cases increasingly related to disability, class, and Gender because they're so interrelated. Mm.
1: And you're based in Montreal, but uh, based are you in Montreal? That, yeah. But are you, uh, are you are you are you are uh, you regionally uh, focused or are you nationally focused? Yeah. No,
2: no. We're just based in Montreal. As I said, we're small. We don't have mm-hmm. a lot of resources, yep. but we do uh, as much as we can, uh, pushing the issue and pushing for policy and, and institutional change uh, that could hopefully even benefit people from coast to coast to coast. Right.
1: Uh, for once again, uh, yeah. we want to say thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to do so. Uh,
2: thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Thank you very we, much. We'd have like to, nice to maybe
1: follow up with you on this uh, at another time.
2: Well, we do have some other cases involved in discrimination against indigenous people here in Montreal, which perhaps we can perhaps talk about because it's, we, we it's important that people really use all this civil rights law in order mm. to fight for equality in urban centers in particular.
1: Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okay,
2: all right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. And that was the Executive Director of the Centre for Research Action on Race Relations. His name is Fo Nimi, and uh, he was kind enough to join us at very short notice today to join us on the show and talk about this very uh, recent issue, uh, one that we heard about in the last couple of days that took place uh, on the West Coast in British Columbia, where a grandfather and a uh, granddaughter were arrested at a local bank, and uh, charged with potential fraud related to uh, some information that they, uh, some ID information that was misread or uh, mistaken for uh, as a mistake, uh, but it was all worked out well. And at this point in time, now, as you may have heard, uh, both the, uh, they're, they're trying to decide on what action uh, to take next. And um, the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations is also uh, demanding answers from the bank on this as well. That's uh, this part of the show. We thank you for listening, but please do not go away, because we're going to be back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. Element FM.
3: Hey, Dave. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine, thank you. And you are on the line with myself, uh, my producer, Andrew, and oh, uh, someone else.
3: Anderson. Andrew Saint Germain.
1: Andrew Saint Germain. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And someone else that is uh, very near and dear to you is in here, making sure I do a good job uh, with the interview, wanting to make sure that oh. she was here, to, you know, to to slap me into into shape if I got offline.
3: All right, sounds good. Sounds good.
1: <laughs> and you know who that is, right?
3: <laughs> That'd be Sarah. I imagine.
1: Yes, that is right.
3: <laughs> uh, so, are are you good to go?
1: <laughs> uh, are you good to go? Yeah, yeah,
3: I'm good to go. Okay. I was I'm in a workshop. I just said we're gonna we're gonna freeze while I go on uh, go on a quick interview, so there everyone's taking a break.
1: Okay, good. So you know we, we're good for about thirty minutes, or so that's what we hope for.
3: Was that was it for thirty? I didn't know it was thirty. Okay. I was uh I, h- how about fifteen? <laughs> I got about fifteen.
1: But well we uh we'll wrong. make what we'll, we'll make it work whatever we got. Uh, let we'll just put it that way. Okay. All right, All so right. um let me just check with Andrew on this. Are we starting this as the top of the show, middle of the show? This will be after the so. Okay. All right. So welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show, who is online and joining us from parts unknown. Oh, maybe, maybe not. I think, uh, I think our guest is in Sioux Lookout. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. I'm in Sulaco, Ontario. I'm looking looking out onto Main Street here. So, probably about my, minus eighteen. Oh yes, That's not windy. so not windy. So
1: good day. good day. And um, that uh, voice you just heard is the voice of Ron Konutsky and he is uh, he is known as a comedian at this point in time. However, that was not always his choice of employment. Uh, he used to, in previous times, be uh, someone that uh, dealt with social working and, and addiction counseling, and um, but he has since uh, gone on to become uh, someone that is in the uh, in the comedy field. And uh, Ron, you know, it's interesting that you have taken on that line of work, uh, considering uh, where you came from. And I guess you, you you come at this in in some ways from a real perspective because your past. Uh, you 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 dealt with uh, some addictions of your own with drugs and alcohol and those kind of things.
3: That is correct. Yeah, I uh, I, I look at my uh, what I'm doing right now. It's kind of like my passion. Mm-hmm. Comedy's comedy's always been comedy's always been my passion. As being a musician, uh, I went into social work because it, it was my purpose. I, I was it was purpose driven for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found that path through seeking purpose. Mm. But uh, when I when I reached my um, when I reached my um, latter thirties and going into my early forties, I was like, I, I want to live some of my my passion. So I started to uh, return and sort of follow up on where I left off when I was a teenager, and and say to myself, I think that's still possible. So I went and I, so comedy is truly a passion to me. I don't call anything employment or work because I automatically don't like it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think a lot of people can can identify with that, but you know uh can we talk a little bit about how you got to this point because you know uh at some point or other, as we talked about uh previously you were you were, you were a musician and you you are a musician um and and of course but but this comedy element was always stirring in the background, but you had some demons to deal with before you had to were able to get to this point point. and um and, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that uh if you don't mind in terms of that background and 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 how long were you dealing with those demons before you were able to to look at them and and uh, and face them and say i have to i have to change
3: uh, so well i was i was active in the drug uh, i was active in drug and alcohol like deeply for about seven years mm-hmm. uh it was during it was during my teen my uh, teen years and uh it carried on up in well i guess what you would call into your youth and um it, and then somewhere along the ways i was like this is you know this is uh, it's too much i'm um i'm losing i'm losing myself and i had to i had to make it had to make a decision and uh it was either uh you know straighten myself out and, and live or keep going the way i'm going down the dark road that i was going and i you know i wouldn't be, i probably wouldn't be here today I, 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 it's hard to say because you never know right. you never really truly know your 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 what what would have happened but i you know following uh, the course i was on i'm pretty sure i i wouldn't be around to now, celebrate the many the many things that i've you know been able to do sure yeah. um so yeah it was it was a se- it was a 7 year run and um and it, but it was uh, it was pretty active, and it was out of control, and it and it was progressively getting worse. Right. So, um, I I'm very fortunate. I I dealt with it at a fairly young age. I I had it dealt with by the time my early twenties were done. So, you know, I by the time I was in my early twenties, I had already got it cleaned up, and and I made a commitment to uh, just live a better life.
1: And in doing so, part of that, uh, y- as you say, you found your, um, your purpose, and part of that purpose led you into social work and addictions counseling. Um, yeah. now, now, with that, you had some success. Uh, you have uh, also made, made some appearances on TVO and APTN and PBS to discuss some of those, those things that you, you, know, you had this firsthand knowledge of in terms of helping others with.
3: Yeah, I, yeah over the years, I've been, at, I've been invited on various uh, television shows and such, to share, I guess, um, my perspective on wellness. Uh, sometimes it's been about education and things like that. I, I know I was on TV Ontario once for education reasons, and um, I've been, yeah, I've, I've been, I'm very grateful for every opportunity that I get, and I believe that when you, when you live well, um, opportunity happens, doors open, things just start to happen. When you're living in a good way, doors start to open for you, mm. you know, and, and i'm just blessed every day with what whatever comes to me and um i don't seek to climb up but i just kind of seek to go forward in life I, a lot of people are trying to climb to get to something and for me i just i just go in different directions and uh, wherever i'm called and and it tends to work like right now i'm, I'm at uh, wassa in education i i'm actually doing a workshop today i'm not doing comedy mm-hmm. but there is i guess there is some humor you know mixed into what i'm doing but we're we're here today talking about um the uh, we're talking about wellness and and when we when we're working with individuals um what what they truly need mm. even though we might be trying to assist someone with getting their grade 12 or we're trying to assist someone with furthering their education or whatever it is but the bottom line is what is it that these that individuals truly need and the, and the, and what true people need is is wellness because without that wellness they they can achieve they, they can't achieve things easily they're not doing well. They're not feeling well. Right. They're not living well.
4: Right.
1: You know, uh, Ron, um, your your purpose, as you say, was the social working, but music uh, played a big role in your life. You're still a m- musician. I'm wondering was there were there elements of 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 comedy that played into your your uh, performance uh, as a musician?
3: Mm, not so much. I, I I find the comedy and the music are um they're they're uh, they're on different paths, but uh, I, and, and maybe it's comedic for the people watching me. the people are watching me, going, "Hey, look at this guy in his fifties trying to act <laughs> like he's 20. That, maybe that's comedic to them. They're <laughs> laughing. They're laughing at me instead of with me, you know. But you uh, 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 for me, comedy and music are two totally different things. Um, the bottom, I guess, the end result is is it's there to entertain. Music for me is a passion because I probably love. What I'm doing more than the people that are watching me mm. <laughs> i it's a passion to me i just love I just love music and uh for comedy, I can kind of see it now as being my passion, but it can also be my purpose too because my my goal is to is to bring laughter to people, so it's probably slowly changing it's mm. changing from it's changing from passion to actual purpose now because I see the value in laughter for people mm-hmm. yeah. And, they say that people have always been telling you laughter is the best medicine. Well, I don't know about that. Sometimes medication will, will, will do more for you, but, um, you know, it's a good start, though. It's, it's uh, a good way to go if you uh, inject some people with some laughter.
1: Yeah, Ron, now, uh, I, I know something that that you said that I saw, and I thought this was very interesting because I, perhaps a lot of people can relate to it, and that is that I think you, you were watching uh, someone, a uh, comic performance and it was at that point when you said, "I think I can do this." And what you were talking about is is that you think I can I can make people laugh, and it, and that was what spurred you uh, to take that that chance. And the other thing that you have done is that you you just dove into it. You you thought you could do this, and then you just dove in, uh, got up there to try and uh, step up on the stage. Now, perhaps your background. And because you had done some some other TV performances, you were somewhat uh, familiar with that area of getting in front yeah. of people and being there. So you had that uh, that going for you a little bit. Um, but you know, when when you when I, I know I can relate to that as well, and maybe other people can. Hey, I could do that, um, but yeah. a lot of people don't don't take that initiative. Like you said, you know, and that's part of making that step to live well is that to to mm-hmm. live uh, and and take those steps towards what you. Ultimately, perhaps should be doing.
3: Yeah, I I forget. Yeah, as far as getting on stage was not hard for me because I was, I was doing a lot of present. I was, I was actively a presenter since two thousand and one. So I work in front of audiences, but I was doing a lot, a lot deeper types of uh, work. So when you're talking about grief and loss, guilt and shame, addictions and things like that, and then trying to inject a little humor into that, into some of those dark topics so that you, so that you can keep your audience and mm-hmm. and keep the audience balanced so you don't lose them or or send them to a place of darkness so for i think that piece you know when i finally went on stage in 2009 to give it a try i entered a competition it was it was i was doing you know group facilitation since 2001 mm. so i, I had a, I had a lot of background so doing a 7 hour uh, session over three days, and then for someone to get up on stage and say, "Hey, can you do five minutes of comedy?" <laughs> that's a walk through the park, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's five minutes—that's that's easy, you know. And uh, but when you actually get on stage, it's like it's intense. Mm. And um, the thing that got in the way for me, I think, when I wanted to do it, I was so excited to do it, but in the back of my head, I had this self-esteem thing saying, "You're a social worker." You're you're not a comedian. What what happens if you fail up there? What happens if you bomb up there? What happens? And I started getting dry heaves. I'm literally. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm on stage, you know, just about getting ready to go on stage, and I'm going. Bleh, bleh. I'm making this uh, this puke sound, and I did it like fifty or sixty times before I went on because I'm I'm freaking out about. Am I going to fail? Mm-hmm. And I thought I thought I've grown past this. I thought I I mm-hmm. thought I was confident in what I could do, and then there were still bits and pieces of that negativity still popping up. It's kind of it's kind of like, I thought I worked past this. I thought I felt comfortable in my own skin. I thought I could do this. And then when I went into comedy, it was a rush because I was like, what if I fail? What if I fail? And uh, yeah, I didn't get any formal training. I just got up and in my head, I thought, well, I'm funny. The things that I think of are funny. And I'm sure the things that I'm going to say out loud will be just as funny to the people around me. And I guess I was correct in that assumption because I got away with it. <laughs> you so, got away, with it.
4: <laughs> got away it.
3: with it. Like a lot of people, a lot of people in the comedy field, they go to these things called open mics. I yep. don't believe in them. Right. I, I I tell people you're either funny or you're not, and then they say, "Well, you got to go there and practice," and uh, that's all part of the system to just get people lined up like ducks to w- want to have their turn. Mm-hmm. Open mics work for for comedy uh, clubs to. Uh, find people but to pay them very little Mm. i hope i'm I'm probably getting in trouble in the i'm going to get trouble in the comedy field for saying that but it's kind of like you you don't you if you're a if you're a carpenter you don't go and hammer nails for practice you know what i mean before Mm. you go you're a carpenter you can hit the nail you you hammer that's what you do Mm. you don't you just get up there and you do it right um and i guess you can go to an open mic and hone in your material most open mics when people go to them they're there to hear themselves. They're not to hear anybody else. They don't really care about the person that's on there. They just, open mics are for people who all think they're funny. Mm. So I say skip open mics. And if you're going to go for it, go big and get on stage in front of an audience. And you'll know if you're funny because they'll laugh. And if they don't laugh, well, you ain't on the right page there. So you're going to have to do some work. <laughs> so for me, that's that's how that's how I did it. I did. It. I don't do practices. I don't do. You just get up there and you and you deliver what's on your mind throw out some truths and embellish it a little bit and have a good time and people, if people love it, you're a comedian. If they don't, time to think about going back to another job like social work.
4: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> now,
3: which having, uh, right. Which I'm doing right now. <laughs> time. Well, it's, purpose. it's
1: always it's nice to have something, something to fall back on but uh, having said that, yeah. of course, you you did win the, uh, the Champion of Champions uh, Thunder Bay Comic Idol King of Comedy Award, I understand, uh, when yeah, you got up there yeah. and did that.
3: Now, I'll tell you, that, was this probably the scariest moment in my comedy career. And the reason for that is because of all my friends that do it part-time and they do shows with me and they do sh- shows on their own in the city and stuff. Uh, I was, I'm the one that's invested in doing this for a living.
4: So mm-hmm. when I,
3: when I was told they were having this event, I had to come back as a comic idol wi- winner and go against my,
4: my, mm-hmm.
3: you know, my colleagues. I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> I don't want to do this. And I prayed, I prayed that someone would call and book a gig with me so I could get out of it. (laughs) Because I thought to myself, I do this for a living. If I don't win this, what does that say about my career? Mm. You know, nobody else. Nobody else is doing it full time. They're doing it part time or once in a while. And I felt so much pressure on me. It was the sickest I think I ever felt. I was kind of like, I have to go on and I have to win this. Because if I don't, I'm a failure, and it comes back to that. Mm. You know i i don't I, I don't want to be a failure, right. and um, that's a, that's all self esteem stuff that goes ba- way back from when I was small, mm-hmm. and um, still still affects me today. Of and course. that's that whole thing around wellness for people, right?
4: Right.
1: You know, uh, having said that, Ron, I, I appreciate uh, you sharing that because I'm sure that helps a lot of other people out there that might be looking at doing. Uh, you know, making an investment in a career choice, uh, trying to get out and do the things that they feel that they're ultimately is uh, their their uh, what they they feel they're they are meant to be doing, and it can help them. Mm-hmm. Now, Ron, the one thing we haven't talked about just before you you leave, and I know you have to run, um, is well, first of all, I want to ask you because you you are a man of of native ancestry, yeah, and uh, Kanutski doesn't really sound like a native name to me.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. I've, uh, I've got quite a uh, quite a mixture. a lot of a lot of, my grandfather is actually an Austrian and mm. um, Austrian descent with a Polish last name, which is very confusing. <laughs> um, and uh, my my family actually comes from Lake Helen First Nation, or a Butung. A is the original name of our community
4: mm. on the north
3: shore of uh, Lake Superior. And um, I come I come from two different cultures. Uh, Ojibwe and Cree versus my, you know, my f- family of uh, European heritage. But one of the things that I that I grew up uh, both I was just telling people today both my grandfathers, their teachings were back in the day. You need a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food on the table, and some and uh, and a job to go to, and uh, you shouldn't be crying about anything else as long as you have those four things, life should be good. Mm. But unfortunately, there's more to that in life. And and that's what I started to understand is that I need to have a sense of belonging. I need to have a sense of um, being. I need to have a sense of identity. I need to have a sense of purpose. I found those four things. I tried to install it in my children and, and, and share that with them as much as possible. And I believe that it's worked for me. It's gotten me going. And for the most part, I see it. It's working in my children and I feel that that's been successful for me and and how that was achieved is by the root of all things. And that's love is hmm. if you give, if you give people love, they're going to go a long way. If you give yourself love, you're going to go a long way. If if you don't allow the, you don't allow that love to flow. That's, that's what's going to freeze things up. That's what's going to stop and stop people in their tracks. So hmm. I'm i I'm a firm believer in love and, uh, Love what you do. That's why I tell people, whatever career, if you're going to go into comedy, you've got to love it. If you're going to be uh, work at Tim Hortons, you've got to love it. Wherever you are, as long as you love it, it doesn't matter. And it's not work anymore. Then it's purpose.
1: Right, nicely said. Um, Ron, yeah. I know, as you say, you you uh, just took a break. You want to get back to that. Um, and uh, I really would, would like, uh, at some future point, uh, point to have you uh come into the studio so we can explore these things more and talk about more and hear more uh about your humor now you've got uh you're on the circuit you've got some gigs coming up i know that uh people can go to your yeah. website to find out more about where you're going to be and uh and uh and find out you know if they're going to be somewhere close to to uh to uh, you and uh, maybe go check you out uh in a live uh, venue
3: yeah i'm working a little i've taken a little break actually from uh from comedy for a bit. I'm back in February. We're going to kick it off again. I'm down in the United States in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. I'm over at the uh, Turtle Lake Casino and Resort. Um, February the 8th, I think, I'm going to be performing with uh, Jack uh, Willite is actually his name. He's a he's a musician slash mm-hmm. comedian, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to, we're going to be together over there. Uh, but what I'm going to be doing for the next sort of uh, six weeks or so is um going back to teaching at a college for a little while
4: yeah.
3: so um that's that's part of my purpose too is to is is is, par- is education and uh, so what I do is like i when I feel like eh, things are getting a bit stagnant or uh, I want to change things up a get a bit I have an opportunity where people just bring me in and allow me to continue the i guess the work that i 've done in the past so i'm going to be teaching some courses in an addiction program uh they're they're um, they're short term, so they last about two weeks. So it's just it's just right for me. I can get a, I can keep the passion in, in uh, education and teaching, and then I move on to the next. And I move on to the next uh, thing, which will be comedy again in February.
1: Okay, great, uh, Ron. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us online and uh, take time out of your uh, workshop today to uh, to talk to us about a little bit about your story, a little bit about what you do, and uh, and and uh, share some of that encouraging uh, elements as well. Now, I'm going to give out your website for people at the end as we leave, but uh, I, I noticed that from li- listening to some of the things that you do in terms of the kind of humor you bring to the stage and for people to participate in, uh, it's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff that you are familiar with and a lot of things that people can relate to. I'm just wondering, you know, I, I was particularly taken with um, what you did uh, around the powwow. Uh, Oh yeah, you have a lot of fun with powwows. I I find
3: I find I have a lot of fun subtlety, like the 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 subtle things that happen at powwows, the individuals that are that uh, participate at powwows. So um, yeah, I spent a lot of time there. So I sat and just observed and in a lot of the, you know, the things that you see there every day and let's yep. embellish on it a bit and have some good chuckles.
1: Now, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind just before we go to do something, but I noticed that one of the things you talked about uh, getting up and doing the dancing and the powwow, you said around and around and around, but it was always in the clockwise fashion. You didn't do the counterclockwise. Some powwows go counterclockwise. Right? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't promote counterclockwise. I'm a I'm a, clock, a, I'm a clockwise person. So, yeah, I, I know, I know my neighbors down south. They go counterclockwise.
4: <laughs> That's right. And,
3: and I, and I, and I always wondered. I always wondered, like deep down, like we always say, let's be understanding, and accept everybody's ways. But I always wonder, like if my neighbors are standing watching me as I'm going <laughs> clockwise, going, that guy's going backwards. <laughs> You know, you and I, that's, kind of the stuff, that's the kind of the stuff that I like to bring up as we make fun about that. And, you know, we're all pretending we're getting along together, but in each other's mind, if you look at each other, you're going the wrong way. You're so are going the wrong way, buddy. Uh,
1: so, Ron, if you don't mind, uh, would you mind giving us just a little bit of the arena manager as Arnold Schwarzenegger just before we go?
3: Oh, you want to hear? Okay. So, yeah, okay, here we go. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a power MC. All right, I want all the women to get off the power ground right now. Get out of there. We want all the men to come out. We're going to do the dock and dive. That's going to be a dance for the Warriors. When that drum beat goes down, I want you guys to get down. You guys get down because I have my M16 out here. I'm going to start shooting. When you get that drum beat, I want you to get down to the ground. Get down now. Get down.
4: There you go. <laughs>
1: Ron, thank you so much for that little taste, and we appreciate it very much. I really look forward to having you uh, in the studio at some uh, future date so we can explore this more.
3: That'd be awesome. I'd love to come in and visit anytime. All right.
1: All right. Thank you. Take thank care. And, uh, I appreciate uh, chi- it. All right. Ah, miigwech. And that is Ron Kaneski. He is a comedian, as you may have heard, doing a great in, uh, impersonation of Arnold Schwarzenegger as uh, an arena manager at a powwow. And uh, it was great to have him on the line joining us from Sue Lookout today. If you want to find out more about Ron, you can check him out uh, at his website at com. You can find out all about his upcoming dates. You can find out and you can check him out online. He's got some great videos on there. You can see uh, uh, some of the the comic uh, elements that he brings uh, to the stage. Uh, So please do that and we look forward to having him on the show at a future date. And uh, if you have missed uh, a part of a show or if you've missed any of the previous uh, interviews that you've done and you'd like to check them out, you can always do that on our SoundCloud. We but do post them on our SoundCloud. Uh, check out our website at elmntfm.ca and you can uh, check out both our Toronto and Ottawa stations by doing that. See some of the personalities that are involved and uh, check out the music, and especially the Indigenous music that we play, which is so important to us uh, that we love to promote. And we'll be right back with Caroline O'Neill in our sister station in Ottawa at 95.7. Be sure to stick around for that. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Ninety five point seven in Ottawa, one oh six point five in Toronto. And uh don't forget you can also listen online if you uh Uh, download the Radio Player Canada app. You can type in 106.5 or 95.7 ELMNT FM and listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And speaking of which, we're happy to welcome uh, one of our own to Moment of Truth. We've had her on before, but it's always a pleasure to have her back online. It is Caroline O'Neill and she is in Ottawa. Caroline, welcome back and Happy New Year.
0: Thank you. Happy 2020. Thanks for having me back.
1: It's great. And I know you did a little bit of traveling, I think, over the holidays, didn't you?
0: That's correct. I was actually in Europe for the holidays. I spent part of it in Germany and then the other part of the holiday in Spain.
1: Well, how was that?
0: It was great. It was a really nice change of pace. And it was really enjoyable to bring in the holidays from a different location.
1: I bet. You know, now this is a little off topic, but as you were overseas and in, in uh, other countries... Did you get a, any kind of a perspective from a Canadian's perspective of of what uh, what's happening in North America from their view?
0: You know what that's really interesting um my last night in Germany, I was staying at a hotel, and a waiter was asking me tons of questions about our prime minister. Mm. They, you know, and kind of like a first-name basis thing, how is Justin, how is Justin doing, um, we really want to know about him, mm. that sort of thing. And I definitely think that international spotlight is still there. Mm. I will say that maybe it's less of a warm spotlight now. The waiter had heard about the blackface and brownface scandals and was pretty disappointed to hear about that. Mm. But on the whole, people, I think, are still very much aware of our prime minister, and I I think we are enjoying a different spotlight than we had maybe in years previously.
1: And and what about south of the border? Any sense of that with with this guy or anyone else?
0: Actually, you know what? That waiter in question is from Venezuela, so he was talking about some of the different experiences that his family has had trying to leave the country, and they did talk about some of the challenges that they were facing when they were looking to the U.S. as an option. Mm. And he was saying that his entire family is essentially spread out across Europe with one sibling still in Venezuela, and they're very worried for her.
4: Mm.
1: Wow. Well, let's bring things back uh, home. And uh, we have, some, of course, the new year and uh, some unfortunate news that has happened uh, you know, involving the uh, uh, Ukrainian airline that crashed and uh, killing 57 Canadians as well as uh, uh, the entire, uh, the entire uh, uh, personnel and everyone on board. About 176 people, I believe, died and perished in that crash and it was brought down mm-hmm. by a, an Iranian uh, missile. Uh, at this point in time, we now know that that is confirmed, of course, um, and we know that the Iranian uh, uh, parliament has made some statements about this being a mistake, uh, they made a couple of arrests, uh, from what I understand.
0: Exactly. So, what we are hearing from Iran's president Hassan Rouhani is that, as you said, there were mistakes and negligence involved in that crash. People have been arrested. They're arrested. They're not really saying a lot right now about who was arrested, how many people. Um, but one of the things that Rouhani is doubling down on is that he thinks that the government's line that the tragedy was rooted it was rooted in U.S. aggression. That's something that. His government has said before, and they're continuing to say now. What we're hearing from our Prime Minister is that the 57 Canadians and other victims would be home safe right now if tensions hadn't escalated between the U.S. and Iran. So I think the message from Rouhani is that there are other people who share the blame, and in a way it does sound like our Prime Minister is echoing that sentiment.
1: Yeah, so what do you get a sense of in the Ottawa area as to how that might play out or what tensions that might bring To our own relationship uh, you know with the United States
0: you know I think that the relationship with the United States in many ways, is one of our most important relationships if only because of its geography Mm. we are very close to the United States and that often means that we are linked to some of their actions or we worry or we think about how different things could impact us what I have been hearing a lot of scholars saying is that over the past few years, Donald Trump has towed the line very closely when it has come to the idea of a war, but never so close as as last week. But war has consequences; there are lives at stake now. In regards to the specific incident, you'll notice, as you said, David, there were 57 Canadians on board. There was not one American. Absolutely. I don't know how many times going forward Canada will be willing to forgive and forget with the states. This really impacted us. It also impacted other allies as well, like Germany. This did not have a huge impact on the United States. And I also think that there are some problems that the higher-ups are having with how Trump has responded to this tragedy. Because, again, this will take a toll on our country.
1: Yeah and and even his, his Trump's reaction in general seemed uh, very uh opposite to generally how he would have responded to things very low key uh it raises some other questions for me I'm not sure about anybody else but it, it certainly raises some other questions that uh may play out later or or just how uh and what involvement there was with things as this whole thing rolled out you know
0: And you know what? We're still hearing more and more. But I think at the end of the day, what people, I think, are hoping the message is to the president and to his advisors, are that there is a cost to this, right? You can't be going toe-to-toe to to war all the time. And if you do, there are real lives at stake. With the airstrikes, he was quite lucky in the sense that no one was hurt. Mm -hmm. This was very different, and this had global impacts.
1: Now, I did hear something that the U.S. had some prior warning to those strikes on their own basis. Did you hear anything of that effect?
0: I did hear something similar to that, David. Where um, intelligence had shown the missile um, on some of their um, had shown the missile kind of come up on some of the different tools that they used. That was something that I heard. A lot of this, though, I think we need a full report to come out, and that is something that we have investigators on the scene working on now. So I did hear something similar, but I would be interested to see the full report that should be coming our way.
1: Now, going back to the Iranian airline, uh, rather rather the Ukrainian airline that was 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 brought down. Um, what do you know about uh, that they were even flying in this region at all in in light of the tensions that were going on?
0: Well, I mean, for a lot of people were students, right? So here in Ottawa, there were people on board who were students at the University of Ottawa or were students at um carlton university Mm. these were um, a lot of scholars so i think people had planned travel around the holidays i think that's what happened and that's the sort of thing that you plan very early on people had breaks with school and people were going to visit their families i also think when you hold dual citizenship like a lot of people did and you have only certain times to see your family sometimes you're not maybe always able to factor in the fact what other people are looking at right i think that there are People who have kind of said, "Well, why would you be in that area?" But if your family's in the area and you have few opportunities to go, I think people would take that opportunity.
1: I guess what I'm, I'm wondering about is, and again, I, I don't know if you can answer this, but uh, maybe why? Because uh, I, I haven't heard much about this. Is why would they maybe wouldn't have have changed the direction of the of the flight uh, pattern at that point in time, given the nature of the the, the situation?
0: You know what? That's a really good question. Um, And as someone who is just on a plane myself, it's, you know, so many different things can happen when you're flying. Mm. I also think, too, sometimes when people are down to the wire and making last-minute decisions, that is where we have seen some of the more horrific plane incidents in our history. So I don't know if that was something that was factored in. But again, we will hopefully learn from that. The only thing I find concerning about the report is we have heard that the black boxes were damaged, Mm. and I don't know how helpful they'll be in allowing us to paint a picture of what did happen last week.
4: And
1: now in regard to that, uh, we've heard, of course, that some, uh, some Canadians are now being allowed in uh, to the crash site to, to, to view this and to maybe have access to the, the black boxes. And um, what have you heard in terms of, of, of that kind of thing? Anything from your end about uh, what, how, how um, uh, cooperative the Iranian authorities are being and, and those kind of
4: things?
0: So, first of all, we do know that there are two Canadian investigators who have access to the site as of today. And according to the Transportation Safety Board, that was an invitation that did come from Iran. We also heard from our Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, that there are other people on their way as well, that Iran has granted the visas, and I believe about eight people are on their way. And then Canada is doing some work at home to kind of make sure that there are connections there. So there are consular officials on their way to Iran, but there are also consular officials fanning out across the country to make sure that they can be in contact with the family of the victims and acting as a liaison for them.
1: Yeah, and that's the other side of this, isn't it? It's it's being able to get those bodies home and the families that have to deal with this uh, extremely unfortunate tragedy.
0: And this is, you know, this is a more upsetting part of this, right? We heard that it was a fiery crash. One of the things that I think will take time is identifying those bodies and making sure that they do get back to people. And again, that goes back to the human cost of tensions like this.
1: Now, the other side of this is, uh, I remember seeing something about uh, the call for um, uh, having this elite force, the Iranian elite force uh, deemed as a terrorist faction. Uh, Did you hear anything to that effect and, and what that might implicate?
0: You know, I think that, I think last week was such a whirlwind, David, where at some points it seemed like war was just on the brink, and then at other points it seemed like things were taking a step back. What I do know is that people on a whole are unhappy, and in Toronto just yesterday, Iranian Canadians were out protesting about some of their problems with the Iranian regime, so I think it is fair to say that there are some issues in Iran Um, I would be more interested to see, typically, if something like this is an act of extremism or terrorism, somebody claims the event. That hasn't really happened in this instance.
1: Mm. Um, Well, Caroline, anything else uh, uh, on this issue that we haven't discussed that you think is important to mention?
0: You know, um, for people who are having a hard time, one of the things that I noticed that a local charity was doing, that I think was really helpful, was we have a center here called Distress Ottawa, And I'm hopeful that there's a similar one in Toronto. And they were saying that it's okay to be impacted by headlines like these. And they were saying that you you should be contacting free 24-hour services if you are having a hard time with some of this news. So that was something that we were trying to share with people here in Ottawa last week. And I think that's just something that I would urge people to consider if what you're hearing is troubling to you. Distress Center Ottawa was saying that's okay, but there is all to
1: Great. Yeah, that's that's good to know, of course, for people and, and uh, anyone that is uh, has been traumatized or does need that help, they should be reaching out and trying to find that help. Um, a- absolutely, for sure. Uh, Caroline, just before we go, I'm just wondering uh, anything on the horizon that we want to keep uh, abreast of or, or, or be looking for that we want to get you back on to talk about?
0: Yeah, I mean, a few things. First of all, the House will be back in session next for the New Year, so that will certainly be exciting. Um, The other thing that I know you and I have both been keeping an eye on, David, is the LNG pipeline and what's been happening with the Wet'suwet and Hereditary Chiefs. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That'll be great to follow up on, uh, Caroline. It's always great to have you on the show and and, and get your perspective uh, as you are our eyes and ears up there in uh, Ottawa and Parliament Hill. So it's a pleasure to welcome you back uh, to uh, the show in 2020.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's our pleasure. Thanks, Caroline. And that is Caroline O'Neill. She is our Ottawa uh, Eyes and Ears on Parliament Hill, uh, reporting from 95.7 in Ottawa, our Element FM station and sister station in Ottawa. And that is our show for uh, today. And we uh, look forward to uh, having you back again. Please listen in right here on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And don't forget, you can also catch our shows online at our website, elmntfm.ca, and also on SoundCloud. Uh, we are posting all of our uh, our, our interviews online on, on uh, SoundCloud, so you can always catch something there if you missed it or you caught part of it and you want to hear the rest of it, it will be posted there. And uh, we look forward to having more great guests for you to listen to right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. And again, I say, Kimi uh, miigwech, uh, Nyawa and... Uh, uh, for listening to the program and we look forward to bringing you lots more in 2020. And that's it for me right now. Until next time, I say onidusha. I also want to say Nyawa miigwech, wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce
4: Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, miigwech, and thanks for listening.